0: Chapter Five of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Five Colonel Harcourt's Letter as we desire throughout this tale to make the actors themselves wherever it be possible the narrators using their words in preference to our own we shall now place before the reader a letter written by colonel harcourt about a week after his arrival at glencore which will at least serve to rescue him and ourselves from the task of repetition it was addressed to sir horace upton her majesty's envoy at stuttgart one who had formerly served in the same regiment with Glencore and himself, but who left the army early to follow the career of diplomacy, wherein still a young man he had risen to the rank of a minister, it is not important at this moment to speak more particularly of his character than that it was in almost every respect the opposite of his correspondence, where the one was frank, open, and unguarded, the other was cold, cautious, and reserved. Where one believed, the other doubted. Where one was hopeful, the other had nothing but misgivings. Harcourt would have twenty times a day wounded the feelings or jarred against the susceptibility of his best friend. Upton could not be brought to trench upon the slightest prejudice of his greatest enemy. We might continue this contrast to every detail of their characters, but enough has now been said, and we proceed to the letter in question. Glencore Castle. Dear Upton, true to my promise to give you early tidings of our old friend, I sit down to pen a few lines, which, if a rickety table and some infernal lamp black for ink should make illegible, you'll have to wait for the elucidation till my arrival. I found Glencore terribly altered. I'd have not known him. He used to be muscular and rather full in habit. He is now a mere skeleton. His hair and moustache were coal black they are a motley grey. He was straight as an arrow, pretentiously erect, many thought. He is stooped now, and bent nearly double. His voice, too, the most clear and ringing in the squadron, is become a hoarse whisper. You remember what a passion he had for dress, and how heartily we all deplored the chance of his being colonel, well knowing what precious caprices of costly costume would be the consequence. Well, a discharged corporal in a cast-off mufti is stylish compared to him. I don't think he has a hat. I have only seen an oilskin cap, but his coat, his one coat, is a curiosity of industrious patchwork, and his trousers are a pair of our old overalls, the same pattern we wore at Hounslow when the king reviewed us. Great as these changes are, they are nothing to the alteration of the poor fellow's disposition he that was generous to munificence is now an absolute miser descending to the most pitiful economy and moaning over every trifling outlay he is irritable too to a degree far from the jolly light-hearted comrade ready to join in the laugh against himself and enjoy a jest of which he was the object he suspects a slight in every illusion and bristles up to resent a mere familiarity as though it were an insult of course i put much of this down to the score of illness and of bad health before he was so ill but depend upon it he's not the man we knew him heaven knows if he ever will be so again the night i arrived here he was more natural more like himself in fact than he has ever been since his manner was heartier and in his welcome there was a touch of the old jovial good fellow who never was so happy as when sharing his quarters with a comrade. Since that he has grown punctilious, anxiously asking me if I'm comfortable, and teasing me with apologies for what I don't miss, and excuses about things that I should never have discovered wanting. I think I see what is passing within him. He wants to be confidential, and he doesn't know how to go about it. I suppose he looks on me as rather a rough father to confess to he isn't quite sure what kind of sympathy if any he'll meet with from me and he more than half dreads a certain careless outspoken way in which i have now and then addressed his boy of whom more anon i may be right or i may be wrong in this conjecture but certain it is that nothing like confidential conversation has yet passed between us and each day seems to render the prospect of such only less and less likely I wish from my heart you were here. You are just the fellow to suit him, just calculated to nourish the susceptibilities that I only shock. I said as much t'other day, in a half-careless way, and he immediately caught it up and said, Ay, George, Upton is a man one once now and then in life, and when the moment comes, there is no such thing as a substitute for him. In a joking manner, I then remarked, Why not come over to see him? leave this he cried venture in the world again expose myself to its brutal insolence or still more brutal pity in a torrent of passion he went on in this strain till i heartily regretted that i had ever touched this unlucky topic i date his greatest reserve from that same moment and i am sure he is disposed to connect me with the casual suggestion to go over to stuttgart and deems me in consequence one utterly deficient in all true feeling and delicacy I needn't tell you that my stay here is the reverse of a pleasure. I'm never what fine people call bored anywhere, and I could amuse myself gloriously in this queer spot. I have shot some half-dozen seals, hooked the heaviest salmon I ever saw rise to a fly, and have had rare coursing. Not to say that Glencore's table, with certain reforms I have introduced, is very tolerable, and his cellar unimpeachable. I'll back his Chamberton against your Excellencies, and I have discovered a bin of red hermitage that would convert a whole vineyard of the smallest Lafitte into Snead's claret. But with all these seductions, I can't stand the life of continued restraint I'm reduced to. Glencore evidently sent for me to make some revelations which now that he sees me, he cannot accomplish for aught I know there may be as many changes in me to his eyes as to mine there are in him. I only can vouch for it that if I ride three stone heavier, I haven't the worst place, and I don't detect any striking falling off in my appreciation of good fare and good fellows. I spoke of the boy. He is a fine lad, somewhat haughty, perhaps, a little spoiled by the country people calling him the young lord, but a generous fellow, and very like Glencore when he first joined us at Canterbury. By way of educating him himself, Glencore has been driving Virgil and decimal fractions into him, and the boy, bred in the country, never out of it for a day, can't load a gun or tie a hackle. Not the worst thing about the lad is his inordinate love for Glencore, whom he imagines to be about the greatest and most gifted being that ever lived. I can scarcely help smiling at the implicitness of this honest faith, but I take good care not to smile on the contrary, I give every possible encouragement to the belief, I conclude the disenchantment will arrive only too early at last. You'll not know what to make of such a lengthy epistle from me, and you'll doubtless torture that fine diplomatic intelligence of yours to detect the secret motive of my long-windedness. But the simple fact is, it has rained incessantly for the last three days, and promises the same cheering weather for as many more glencore doesn't fancy that the boy's lessons should be broken in upon and hinc este litterae that's classical for you i wish i could say when i'm likely to beat my retreat i'd stay not very willingly perhaps but still i'd stay if i thought myself of any use but i cannot persuade myself that i am such glencore is now about again feeble of course and much pulled down but able to go about the house and the garden I can contribute nothing to his recovery, and I fear as little to his comfort. I even doubt if he desires me to prolong my visit, but such is my fear of offending him that I actually dread to allude to my departure till I can sound my way as to how he'll take it. This fact alone will show you how much he has changed from the Glencore of long ago. Another feature in him, totally unlike his former self, struck me the other evening. We were talking of old messmates, Croydon Stanhope. Loftus, and yourself, and instead of dwelling, as he once would have done, exclusively on your traits of character and disposition, he discussed nothing but your abilities, and the capacity by which you could win your way to honours and distinction. I needn't say how, in such a valuation, you came off best. Indeed, he professes the highest esteem for your talents, and says, You'll see Upton either a cabinet minister or ambassador at Paris yet and this he repeated in the same words last night as if to show it was not dropped as a mere random observation i have some scruples about venturing to offer anything bordering on a suggestion to a great and wily diplomatist like yourself but if an illustrious framer of treaties and protocols would condescend to take a hint from an old dragoon colonel i'd say that a few lines from your crafty pen might possibly unlock this poor fellow's heart and lead him to unburthen to you what he evidently cannot persuade himself to reveal to me i can see plainly enough that there is something on his mind but i know it just as a stupid old hound feels there is a fox in the cover but cannot for the life of him see how he's to draw him a letter from you would do him good at all events even the little gossip of your gossiping career would cheer and amuse him he said very plaintively two nights ago They've all forgotten me. When a man retires from the world, he begins to die, and the great event, after all, is only the coup de grace to a long agony of torture. Do write to him, then. The address is Glencore Castle, Lenan, Ireland, where, I suppose, I shall be still a resident for another fortnight to come. Glencore has just sent for me, but I must close this for the post, or it will be too late. Yours ever truly, George Harcourt. I open this to say that he sent for me to ask your address, whether through the foreign office or direct to Stuttgart. You'll probably not hear for some days, for he writes with extreme difficulty, and I leave it to your wise discretion to write to him or not in the interval. Poor fellow, he looks very ill to-day. He says that he never slept the whole night, and that the laudanum he took to induce drowsiness only excited and maddened him. I counselled a hot jorum of mould porter before getting into bed but he deemed me a monster for the recommendation and seemed quite disgusted besides couldn't you send him over a dispatch i think such a document from stuttgart ought to be an unfailing soporific end of chapter 5 recording by linda fredericks modesto california august 2012